Hello, and welcome to the Tartan Tardigrade. This is a podcast brought to you by the UK Centre for Astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. In the podcast, we talk to astrobiologists from around the world about their research, their careers, and anything else that comes to mind. This week, we are joined by Rosalie Lopez, a volcanologist from the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She spoke to Adam Stevens and Sean McMahon in December of 2018. Hello, I'm Rosalie Lopez. I'm a senior research scientist at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, which is managed by the California Institute of Technology. Uh, and uh, my first degree was from University College London uh, here in the UK, and it was in astronomy. And I did a, a PhD in planetary geology because during my last year as an undergraduate, I became really interested in planetary geology. Uh, my advisor was a volcanologist, so I went into planetary volcanology and I have worked on a you know variety of bodies, Earth, Mars, Jupiter's moon Io, and now uh, Saturn's moon Titan. Could you tell us something about the missions that you've been involved with? I've been involved uh, with the Galileo mission that uh, uh, went to Jupiter. That was the first mission I was involved in. Uh, but I did my PhD, well, it was quite some time ago, using data from the Viking mission, from Viking Orbiter. Um, so the Galileo mission um, uh, went to Jupiter, and I was responsible for uh, the uh, observations and leading the science uh, for Io, which is Jupiter's volcanic moon. Uh, working with an instrument uh, called NIMS, which is, stands for the um, Near Infrared Mapping Spectrometer. So I believe you hold the honour of being the person who's discovered the most volcanoes or the most active volcanoes. Uh, yes, exactly. I um, With the infrared uh, instrument on Galileo, I found 71 volcanoes on Io that were not previously known. The Voyager mission had found about a dozen volcanoes, and then, you know, a few more had been found from uh, Earth-based telescopes, but um, I-, I didn't know that we were going to find any more. And, um, and then I started finding so many that um, one of my colleagues started joking that I should be in the Guinness Book of World Records. And years later, I had a postdoc, in fact, from, uh, uh, from the UK, uh, from Lancaster, uh, who actually knew somebody who worked for the Guinness Book of World Records. So he made the contact, and uh, uh, he made the contact. And in 2006, uh, there is a note about me in the Guinness Book of World Records. So uh, that was quite um, unexpected, <laughs> but it went from a joke to something real. <laughs> You mentioned earlier today about fieldwork. You've presumably done lots of fieldwork on Earth in various volcanoes. Uh, yeah, yes, I, um, I started out by um, helping with fieldwork on Mount Etna in Sicily because my advisor said, if you don't understand volcanoes on Earth, you really can't understand volcanoes anywhere else. So I went as a student helper, you know, like slave labor, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then I... 
uh, started uh, doing my my own project was very much physical volcanology, but um, I needed to get certain dimensions and certain parameters of uh, lava flows on Etna to figure out how uh, you know uh, flows. Uh, uh, moved, how they got, you know, particularly long or particularly wide, and uh, and so on. And then when I started working on volcanoes on Io, um, uh, one of the things I found was that a lot of them appeared to be lava lakes. And uh, and with some colleagues, I started doing thermal measurements of lava lakes on Earth. Uh, so I have been to quite a few lava lakes on Earth, and that's been very exciting. Uh, and uh, then I joined the Cassini mission that went to Saturn, and I've been studying Saturn's moon Titan. And then the field work hasn't been, you know, the Earth field work hasn't been, you know, quite so much uh, for Titan. I've been studying cryovolcanism, which has really no analogs on Earth. Um, but I have done some field work on uh, dunes because there are a lot of uh, sand dunes on Titan. So I have um, done a little field work helping colleagues, uh, you know, mostly who are working on dunes. And I go to volcanoes just for fun, you know, okay. now and then. <laughs> How is it working on a body like, say, Titan, which is similar in Earth to many ways, but also very different in other ways? Um, you know, does. What are the challenges of doing that? What are the, the the most exciting things about doing that? I guess some of them are obvious, but uh, maybe you can talk about that. Uh, sure. Um, the exciting thing about Titan, uh, well, it's a very, very interesting world, but um, we had almost no data before we got there with Cassini in 2004. So it was really the uh, largest piece of uh, unexplored real estate in the solar system because Titan is quite big. It's about the same size as Mercury. And uh, so just finding out uh, what uh, the surface was like uh, it was, you know, really very exciting. And uh, with uh, the radar instrument, I joined the uh, Cassini radar team. Uh, we got synthetic aperture data uh, of the surface of Titan. Uh, and, um, you know, immediately we saw some features that uh, looked like volcanic features. And then we saw uh, large stretches of uh, sand dunes. And gradually we built up a, a picture of this world that we really knew nothing about. Uh, and, um, you know, one of the challenges is that even at the end of Cassini, we know so much, but... Um, uh, the uh, highest spatial resolution we have with the synthetic aperture radar is about 350 meters, um, which is really, you know, not enough um, uh, to, you know, work out what some of the features are. And, uh, uh, and we, um, uh, a lot of the time we get data that is like uh, half a kilometer, you know, one kilometer uh, in resolution, so it, it's not as good as data that we have for a variety of other barges. But it, you know, it's the first look, and um, we only uh, covered with synthetic aperture radar at these spatial resolutions of, you know, like half a kilometer to a, a kilometer, a kilometer and a half. We only covered about half the surface, so um, we really need a new mission to find out more about the geology. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a lot more than we knew before we got there. 
So Io, just to backtrack to Io slightly, is this extremely volcanic world that's very dramatic to look at and has these spectacular, brightly coloured features on the surface. And I imagine that, and I guess I was taught, that the volcanism of Io has to do with tidal forces acting on it as it orbits um, Jupiter. But Titan's a very cold world. So what might be driving cryovolcanism, eruptive processes on a world like Titan? Well, Titan also uh, uh, you know, has tidal forces interacting with the moon. And the, um, the ocean under the ice crust is, uh, is liquid. And, uh, uh, you know, so that um, Titan has heat and is also large enough that uh, there's probably some primordial heat. Um, So we actually know that some degassing or volcanism still has to be occurring on Titan because, well, there are several lines of evidence, but one of them is that um, the atmosphere has a lot of methane and methane is destroyed by ultraviolet light. So something needs to be replenishing that methane uh, coming from the interior. And we have found on the surface a number of uh, candidate cryovolcanic features and um, you know, a few that are, are quite convincing, although we have not seen any active volcanism on Titan. Um, the uh, infrared instrument has detected some um, changes, uh, and they, uh, you know, and particularly around the feature that we really think is cryovolcanic, uh, some brightening, and um, you know, and that may be due to the gassing. So there may still be something going on, but we can't say for sure. You, you were telling us earlier as well about um, your new project, about uh, astrobiology on Titan. So could you tell us about the potential maybe for, for life there or signs of life and, and things like that? Uh, well, Titan has a, a dense atmosphere. Titan has a liquid ocean under its ice crust. The surface is covered uh, uh, by hydrocarbons. And uh, so it has water. Uh, it has, still has heat. The ocean is liquid and it's got hydrocarbons. So it has tremendous potential for astrobiology. And uh, what we're trying to um, uh, figure out is um, whether these hydrocarbons are penetrating through to the ocean or have penetrated in the past, um, whether uh, you know, life can evolve uh, in this ocean at quite high pressures and um, um, and whether, uh, you know, cryovolcanism can uh, bring this material back up. So uh, if there are biosignatures, if we could measure them. Uh, so I um, only got involved in this uh, project where I wrote a p- proposal less than two years ago when we got funded last year. And it's very exciting, but it's a really new area for me um, uh, in this uh, profession. You're always going after funding and after interesting work. Uh, so I, um, you know, I started out looking at Mars and Earth with um, uh, optical remote sensing, and uh, and I went on to Io, uh, looking with an infrared instrument, and then to Titan with radar, and uh, you know, and now I'm <laughs> starting onto the astrobiology track. So um, uh, you know, it's a it's an exciting career, and I like. Uh, doing new things and, and, and working with a large team. So t- Titan has this wonderful brown haze enveloping, enveloping it, which means you can't see anything without those radar instruments. 
um, you mentioned methane on the surface. Do we know anything about the composition of the organics making up that haze? Uh, yes, I mean we know that there are uh, there is methane, uh, ethane. In fact, methane and ethane uh, in the lakes. Although the lakes are mostly methane, uh, you know, and there are uh, you know a lot of other uh, complex uh, hydrocarbons, you know, um, ammonia, you know, uh, benzene, maybe acetylene. Um, uh, so there is a you know potential there, um, but. A big question is um, uh, whether these organic materials can actually penetrate the ice crust, which, uh, you know, uh, we think is tens of kilometers thick. Some people think about Titan as a world where some radically different form of life could have evolved that didn't use water as its solvent, but some organic compound like methane, maybe. Do you have any thoughts on that idea? Uh, well, uh, one of my colleagues actually, um, you know, Proposed uh, to study that, you know, uh, a few years ago, but the proposal didn't get selected. And I think it was, co- it, it's it's very interesting, but I think maybe it was considered a little far out. Um, so we decided to, you know, look at um, uh, more of what we know, uh, because not that we know a lot about how life, you know, evolved, but, um, uh, you know, we know the water-based uh, life. So that's what we uh, we decided to do. But yes, we can't rule out that um, uh, the, um, uh, the the seas and lakes on Titan might have some very weird life. I mean, to me, it's one of the striking things about the talk you gave earlier was that you were showing really familiar geological features, mountains, rivers, lakes... Um, we, dunes and you know we know that there are volcanoes and glaciers and other sorts of features out, out there in the solar system that are made of very different materials from analogous features on earth if you go out to pluto you've got you know nitrogen sloshing around and again methane dunes and features mm-hmm. like that so geology at least seems to be kind of substrate independent you get the same processes in very different materials you know, it's very tempting to make an analogy with life and wonder if biological processes could also be independent of the material composition in the same way. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. The um, fascinating thing about Titan to me has been just how weird uh, this world is, you know, surface 95 Kelvin, uh, methane being at the triple point, uh, water ice behaving like rock because it's so cold, and yet how the features are so familiar. You know, we call Titan the Earth of the outer solar system. I wonder whether it's maybe a, a little bit dangerous, though, to draw these broad kind of analogies between features that are easy to think, just things like we see rivers, like because as you, some of the other stuff you talked about in your talk, there are very fundamental differences in what's going on there that maybe mean that we don't really understand stand it. So saying, you know, looking at this thing and saying it's a river is, is maybe useful, but maybe also a little bit dangerous because it might not work like rivers on Earth. So doing that is leading us down the wrong path, I don't know. Um, well, um it's uh, it, it, you know in in the end it's kind of all down to to, to physics and, uh, and 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 rheology, and uh, you know I'm reminded of a, a colleague of mine uh, Jeff Cargo uh, who did some uh, experiments uh, during his PhD in the 1980s and that was after the Voyager results that uh, uh, showed that you might have um, 
ice volcanism on places like Triton. Uh, and uh, and uh, he uh, he showed, for example, that um, uh, you know uh, mixtures of um, uh, 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 water, you know, very cold mixtures of water and ammonia would still produce features that were very similar to uh, basaltic flows uh, on Earth, and that's because the rheology was similar. Um, so I think that. Uh, you know the the material uh, composition sometimes may not matter as much a, a, as the actual physical parameters. So maybe just changing tack a little. Um, it, it sounds like from what you said before that you knew quite early on that you wanted to look at volcanoes in the solar system, and now that's exactly what you're doing. Um, maybe or maybe it's you've taken new uh, paths and approaches as well, but. Is, is there any advice that you give to young scientists that you know or you, any tips that you would give to people if they know exactly what they want to go and do in this field? Uh, I started out uh, wanting to be a, an astronaut. I was this little girl growing up in Brazil, and uh, I pretty soon figured out that I was Brazilian, female, and astronauts were nearly all male except for one, and also, um, you know, I had a bad vision. Uh, so those were three things that uh, uh, really didn't make the goal of being an astronaut very realistic. Um, so I thought, well, I still want to work for NASA. And uh, uh, so I figured out I was going to become an astronomer. And that's the path that um, led me to University College London to do a de degree in astronomy. And uh, up to my third year, I was all set for doing something in astrophysics. And then I had this class in planetary geology by Dr. John Guest. And, uh, uh, and I was really interested in that class. And then about three weeks into the course, um, he didn't show up and he sent this postdoc to give the class. And the postdoc said, oh, Mount Etna erupted and the professor had to go. And uh, and I thought, this is really exciting. I always had an adventurous streak. And I thought, this sounds a lot better than freezing cold observatories. Uh, so um, I, you know, really enjoyed that course. And I talked to him about doing a PhD. And he said, well, I never had a graduate student who wasn't a geologist, but I suppose you can do something. <laughs> and uh, so I use more of my physics training uh, to look at, physical volcanology. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so I didn't really become a geologist, but I learned enough volcanology. And then I went to the States, uh, uh, you know, eventually as a postdoc and, and uh, uh, I was working on Mars and people at JPL told me, if you want to stay here, you got to branch out into something else because we're never going to go back to Mars. Yeah. <laughs> no, Mars is dead. So I started working with the Galileo uh, uh, group, and and they offered me a job uh, to do IO. And, uh, you know, I had never studied IO before. I mean, I knew about it. I was very interested. Um, and I had never worked with infrared spectroscopy. And the... Um, uh, the principal investigator of the instrument said, oh, you learn, you know, and, uh, and I did. And, uh, and then when, after many years of working on Galileo, uh, Galileo ended and I needed to find another position. 
And I talked to one of the plantar geologists who had worked with me on um, Galileo, and he said, oh, you should join the Cassini radar team. Uh, and I said, I don't know anything about radar. And he said, oh, you learn. <laughs> and, and I did. And, uh, and then um, a couple of years ago, when one of my colleagues suggested that um, I should lead this proposal in astrobiology, I said, I think you're joking. I don't know anything about astrobiology. And he said, oh, of course you do. You know, and um, so um, my advice is to, uh, A, you have the first thing is that you really have to follow your passion and what you're interested in because uh, research is really very consuming and you've got to love it. Uh, but also don't be afraid to explore new areas uh, because, uh, you know, you learn. Uh, and um, I'm the kind of person who likes exploring new areas. I think I would get bored if I just stuck to the same thing. And I love uh, interdisciplinary research and just collaborating with people who know what I don't know. Uh, but I think we all have to um, follow our passion and see where it leads. So the thing we normally ask is, do you think there's life on Mars, yes or no? Uh, we don't know if there is life uh, elsewhere in the solar system. We are looking, and uh, it is one of NASA's priorities uh, to you know, find out how life evolved and where it evolved. Uh, so you know, we are uh, we are looking, uh, but whether we'll find it on Mars or Europa or Titan or Enceladus, it's uh, you know still unknown. But I think you know if we find it, when we find it, I mean that's going to be the top scientific discovery for a, a long time. I mean, if you had to bet, though, one way or the other. The non-scientist answer. The non-scientist answer, um, I, you know, I would say, you know, probably, yes, um, life evolved somewhere else. But on the other hand, what, you know, uh, people often forget is that we have a sample of one. You can't do statistics with a sample of one. Um, so I don't like to venture. I, um, you know, I like to explore, and certainly, you know, I want to explore whether life could have evolved on Titan and uh, and what biosignatures it might have produced, and can we detect it? Uh, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it's really hard to say for sure. Say we do have another mission to Titan, maybe a lander or something else, and it and it finds some smoking gun evidence for the presence of life, how would you celebrate, commiserate? How would you, how would you respond? If we found uh, you know, evidence of life on Titan or anywhere else, I, I would be so happy. Uh, you know, I think that, um, uh, that uh, it really would fundamentally change a lot of our thinking uh, as, a, as the Earth's population that, you know, we're not unique, we're not alone. Um, and uh, I think that would be extraordinary. So um, uh, it, it would be such an important discovery that we really must, um, you know, strive to make it, you know, whether it is uh, theoretical work or you know, and going there and uh, different missions to different barges, it's all important. Okay, well, thank you very much, Rosie. That was That was great.
Thank you for listening to The Tartan Tardigrade. If you'd like to find out more about the UK Centre for Astrobiology or astrobiology in general, you can visit our website at astrobiology.ac.uk. You'll also find links there to the other episodes of the podcast and a link where you can subscribe via the University of Edinburgh podcast service. And in our next episode, we'll be talking to Nicola McLaughlin from Rhodes University in South Africa.